Good morning. My name is Pastor Curtis. I'm the youth pastor here at Willoughby Church, and I'm not here to give you your weekly Sunday announcements. Instead, I'm here to bring God's word to us all this morning. So, if you, is this, are we good, Will? Yeah, okay. Um, if you've been worshiping the Lord with us here at Willoughby Church since Easter, you'll have noticed that we are in the midst of a series called The Lifestyle of Jesus. And over the past few weeks, Pastor Jenna has been walking us through the book of Luke and drawing out some of the theological significance of Jesus' actions and then what those actions mean for us today. And today, I'm going to do that as well. But if you were reading the weekly email on Friday, you might have been, but Curtis, aren't you preaching Acts 2? Jesus already ascended. And I'd say, well, yes, he did, but that doesn't mean that his ministry on earth was over. So by a way of introduction to our reading today, I want to kind of highlight two aspects of Luke, the author of Acts, um, highlight two of his literary skills, because he really is a master of storytelling, and I think that's on big display in Acts. So first, in the book of Acts, there is a geographic meta-narrative. Pastor Bill said, Curtis, that's too big of a word, don't use it. And I went, well, I've got to explain it then. So what's happening in the book of Acts is there is a geographic shift throughout the entire narrative in the um, entire book of Acts. And what happens is in the beginning, it starts out in Jerusalem, right? So we see that in the very beginning, Jesus ascends, and then there is a close, a very short amount of time before Jesus' disciples replace Judas with Matthias. Um, and all this is happening in Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of the known world at this time, or in the Jewish world at this time. So throughout the book, you'll see this geographic shift from, the, from Jerusalem out throughout the rest of the world, and it ends with Paul's arrival in Rome and his preaching in Rome, which is the epicenter of the entire world at the time, right? So we've moved from a Judean epicenter to a worldly epicenter, which highlights the underlying message that the message of Jesus Christ is not just for the Jewish people, but for everybody, Jew and Gentiles. So what we see is that the gospel is spreading, and I want to look today at a little bit about how is that spreading. The second thing I want to highlight about the text that we're going to read is that right after um, Jesus' ascension into heaven, we have Pentecost. We celebrated that a few weeks ago. The coming of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit anoints the apostles to continue the work that Jesus started during his three-year ministry through Israel. So this morning, we may not be looking in the Gospel of Luke, and we're not talking about Jesus' human ministry on earth, but we're still reading Luke, and we're still talking about the lifestyle of Christ as he sent his spirit upon the apostles, and he educated and informed his followers on how Christian ministry ought to be conducted. So with those two things laid out, I invite you to open up your Bibles. If you are, have a pew Bible, it's on page 1092, Acts 2, verses 37 to 47. So we are jumping into the end of Acts 2, and what we have here is we've got Pentecost, and then we've got Peter's sermon, and we're just going to read the response to Peter's sermon, essentially, is what's going on. So, 37, when the people heard this, that being Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 300 or 3,000 were added to their number that day. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. All right. So it's been nearly two summers in my life since I was on a mission trip. Normally in my life and ministry as a youth pastor, I spend the first two weeks of July on a mission trip. This was the case when I was a youth leader and an intern at our church in Edmonton, and it's been the rhythm of ministry here at Willoughby, and it's been like this for the better part of a decade. In fact, Nicole and I, 10 years ago, spent our first anniversary apart from each other while I was leading a mission trip to Queens, New York, and Nicole was leading another group in Washington, D.C. July is mission trip month for our family. So you can imagine how weird it has been then to not have that anchoring event in the midpoint of the year. It didn't happen last year, and this year we're working to try to put together a last-minute mission trip as the COVID restrictions ease. And this has caused me to think a little bit more deeply about mission and how the church ought to engage in that task. The other week, we were blessed to hear the testimony of some young people when they made their public public profession of faith. Two of those young people have been on multiple summer mission trips, and both of them testified to the impact that those trips have had on their relationship with Christ. And that got me thinking some more about mission and its function in the life of the Christian. What really is mission, and how can we participate in it? My goal this morning is to offer a theology of mission that is grounded in the actions and movements of the early church that we found in Acts 2, the passage that we just read. I want to share with you how that can manifest in our current day and age by sharing some stories from previous summer mission trips and how some of those ideas, and from those ideas, how we might engage in mission as churchgoers today. The Holy Spirit came and rested upon the gathered apostles in the earlier words of Acts 2. Peter, spurred on by the Spirit, radically transforms from the bumbling and brash disciple that we all know from the Gospels to an eloquent and doctrinally confident preacher. It is right after this sermon that we get the first glimpse of a Christian community that is bonded together by the Holy Spirit and unified by the truth of Jesus Christ crucified. The text before us today tells us that the early church engaged regularly in four fundamental activities. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship together, the breaking of bread, and prayers. That's four fundamental activities. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowshipping together, breaking of bread, and prayers. So what does it mean then to do each of these things, and how do they fit into a missional theology? Well, the first listed activity of the early church was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and that is exactly what it sounds like. They gathered together to listen to the church leaders. These were the apostles who, were, who followed Jesus for three years and were taught by him. Essentially, this is what we're all doing this morning, if you're here watching the live stream. The Lord desires that his people would remain true to the fundamentals that he himself taught his disciples during his ministry on earth. His disciples were devoted to his teaching throughout his ministry, and he desires that the church should do the same. Preaching and teaching is a primary way that God moves among his people. We can see that in the previous section of Acts 2, that is Peter's sermon, 
He preaches the word, the good news to the people of Jesus Christ crucified, and 3,000 people are baptized and saved. Throughout the New Testament, we see the directives to preach and teach God's word, to unfold and proclaim the truth of the scriptures with the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of God. Paul encourages various churches to preach and teach with the courage that God would be glorified. He is glorified when we interpret his word properly, and so that people, that is you and I, might grow in our faith, grow in our maturity. God uses preaching as a tool for calling people home to his church, to him. Or, to, or maybe a better way to say it would be like in the catechism, the preaching of the gospel opens the kingdom of heaven. So the catechism says it this way, that is the Heidelberg Catechism, in question and answer 84. How does the preaching of the holy gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The catechism informs us that the preaching of the gospel is a missional act, maybe some, maybe the most missional act. It opens the kingdom by proclaiming that God has forgiven all the sins based on Christ's merit. Grace is freely given to those who believe. God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen to use the audible proclamation of the gospel from the mouths of sinners as a primary tool for evangelism to the lost. Devoting yourself to that teaching is a missional act because your faith, because your faith will grow through that devotion, and when your faith grows and when your love for Christ grows, you will not be able to do anything but share the good news of Jesus Christ around you. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching, nurture your faith, and grow in your love for Christ. That is a missional action. And let that, let, let that love for what Christ has done for you overflow into your workplaces and communities. The second movement of the early church that we're looking at is regularly meeting together for fellowship. The early church met together on a regular basis. The way this is phrased in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, implies that devoting themselves to the teaching and to fellowship are connected activities. Gathering for teaching and instruction was something that was accomplished in community. There was a communal nature to the gatherings for teaching, just like ours are today. Now, this wasn't uncommon in the time to meet together on a regular basis, but it would have been uncommon to sell possessions and give to the needy to ensure that all members of the community had what they needed. The key unifier in this community was the shared doctrine of Jesus' death and resurrection. This growing group of people in Jerusalem would have no reason to come together except for their shared desire to live into the, truth, into the truth of Jesus' saving work on the cross. It was that doctrinal unity that called them into fellowship with one another. It was within this context that we have a communion of saints, or a covenant family, a group of people dedicated to one another for the purpose of learning more about Jesus and his love for each of them. A group of people dedicated to the care and well-being of each other. This is just like our church today. It sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It's hot up here. Whew. I don't know if it's hot down there. I was sweating down there too. Anyways. Fellowship together is a missional activity because it makes people strong. The world outside the early church was a crazy one, just like ours is today. The leaders and neighbors who did not understand, there were leaders and neighbors who did not understand what the church, the followers of the way, were doing. Having that fellowship, that sense of belonging, made the early Christians strong and able to be bold in their communication of the gospel to those around them. They were nurtured and encouraged by their fellowship together. 
The third mark of the church that we're looking at is the breaking of bread. The early church, along with listening to the apostles' teaching and meeting regularly for fellowship, also ate together often. The breaking of bread gives some implication to the Last Supper with Jesus in the upper room, and so it implies that the church had communion together on a regular basis. But it also means that they just simply ate meals together regularly. This action of eating together in remembrance of Christ was something that, the, that set the church apart from the Jewish customs and other religious movements of the day. Meals create belonging. Communion, in our service today, does the same thing. It is a family meal for those who testify to the goodness of God in Christ Jesus and desire to proclaim his death until he returns. It is a sacred meal, a place for those within the covenant family. A meal around your home kitchen table is no different. It is a sacred place where stories are shared, life is processed, and people are made to feel like they belong. The breaking of bread together is a missional activity because it is invitational to the other. People are grafted into the family system around the dinner table. This was a key aspect to Jesus' relational ministry during his three years. Prayers. Prayers were not only a private thing. You can be sure that the apostles in the early church prayed privately to the Lord because, well, Jesus taught them that during his ministry on earth. The implication of the prayers being added to these four marks of the church is that the public and communal prayers were necessary. It is not something to be sequestered away only to your private life, but as part of the public life of the church. Prayer is an activity that denotes humility and submission to the Lordship of Christ, something that made the early church unique. While the world was still reeling from Jesus' disruptive ministry, his death and resurrection, the early Christians were declaring their love for him and that they were praying to him and thus declaring his lordship over the earth. These four marks of the church are regular activities that our modern church systems are built on. When you look through our church website or through the bulletin, you'll see the same movements in our church family and many others. All these activities nurture our faith enhance our understanding of the Word of God, and they ensure that we are cared for as individuals as well. Engaging these activities is missional because the church is the locus of Jesus Christ on earth. It is not our works that save us, but the work of Jesus Christ that is bestowed upon us to justify us before the, cru the ruler and creator of all, God the Father. All these activities, all these actions, that is, listening to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, are all things that will draw us into a deeper understanding of our sinful nature, and therefore a deeper understanding of Christ's completed work on the cross. When that, good, when that good news sinks into our hearts, it cannot be contained. We see it time and time again throughout the Gospels, with those that Jesus healed, and with the Apostle Paul, who says that he can do nothing else but preach Christ crucified. At the end of the day, that's really the mission of the church, is to do nothing else but preach Christ crucified. At the end of our text, it says, and the Lord added to their number daily. That's the missional imperative alive in this text. It's not we who save. It's not you and I who bring people to church. It is the Lord, and we are his servants. God will call people into the church, and he will bring home the lost, the lost sheep. Now, I don't want to be mistaken here. I'm not suggesting that we should stop supporting our missionaries or stop doing trips like Serve or Guatemala or many others. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm really trying to say is that what I think the Lord is saying in Acts 2 is that our function as a church of God is paramount and a preceding player to the mission of God, a partner in the mission of God. Our desire for mission is an outpouring of our love for God and his world and a desire to see sinners saved through Christ. 
Our church community, that is our weekly services, hospitality, our prayers together, are all there to encourage and support the maturation of our faith so that when the Lord adds to his church, the flock will be cared for. The four marks of the church outlined in Acts 2 are the church's mission in the world. I hope that you might be starting to see that in your own life or in the life of our church, Willoughby Church, that the Lord might be adding to the number daily. While these activities may seem at first glance like something insular and exclusive, they all carry an invitation to partake in the freedom that Christ offers us through his death on the cross. Come and learn, come and eat, come and be cared for, come and worship. Being part of the local church is doing mission work. The text we read today tells us that these four actions as the church resulted in the Lord adding to their number daily. As with all the fundamental activities of the early church, Acts seems to suggest, seems to suggest, ugh, Acts seems to suggest that by doing so, the Lord moves among his people and adds to the church. One of the places where this is concentrated and easy to see is on our summer mission trips. Just a few weeks ago, we heard the testimonies claiming as much. When we go on serve with a youth group, we engage in mission in two, we- in two ways. We leave our home church and travel to sister churches and join in the mission that they're already engaged with. This can be supporting some of the diaconal work in the church community, supporting and volunteering with neighboring nonprofit organizations to help the poor and needy, or working at the church itself. We also devote ourselves, this is the second way of engaging in mission, we devote ourselves to teaching, fellowship, prayer, and breaking of bread every single day. The rhythm of a serve day is to wake up, eat breakfast, do devotions, spend the day at work, have dinner, worship together, devote ourselves to teaching, have small group discussion time, and prayer. All the same rhythms and movements that the early church engaged in. In 2019, we served alongside Evergreen Community Church in Fort McMurray in northern Alberta. It was a wonderful time of ministry and of fellowship. I have been on dozens of mission trips and seen many church bodies in action, but I have never seen a church as hospitable as Evergreen CRC in Fort Mac. The church didn't just open to us for the week, but they opened their lives. We joined their covenant family for one week, and it was wonderful. We saw them fellowship together, and by the nature of their fellowship, we were invited in without a second thought. It takes a lot of work to put together a serve week, and this church was only able to do it because of their desire to share with each other. Each day, they were rotating homes for babysitting so that the young parents could drop off their kids and be at the church to cook breakfast and dinner every single day. Husbands and wives used their vacation time so that the other, or both if they used the babysitting, could be present all week to minister to the needs of the volunteers. It was their love for Jesus and their desire to embody the structure of the early church that carried a huge impact in their community. Of course, they had an outreach focus, hosting serve, but their hospitality to us as volunteers was a standout memory for many of the team. It was the four core elements of the early church that were alive at Evergreen CRC and that provided the foundation of the mission of serve to happen. Well, on any serve trip, we have a lot of fun. It's inevitable when you fill up two or three minivans with teenagers. We usually have fun in the form of road trip antics, jumping into lakes, and pulling pranks on Dylan. But whenever a new student comes on to serve, usually they're grade seven or eight, they are bombarded with stories from previous years and all the great memories. In fact, when I'm hanging out with teenagers or even at youth group, we start reminiscing about past serve trips. We rarely share stories about mission work but rather we, stare, we share the stories of all the things that happened in between it, which is an interesting 
It's interesting to remember that, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because, yeah, anyways. <laughs> the most wonderful thing about that is that these are trips where friendships are formed and community is forged together. It's the awesome memories at Abraham Lake or Tofino or the car ride back from Mystic Beach that create the friendships. These memories are only possible when students join, these, join on these mission trips to be the church in the world. But it's not just about making friends. It's about building community. We might make friends in these silly mo moments, but it is the hard work during the day on the serve sites and the processing together in small groups and praying together or the moments of ministry at a homeless shelter or the sharing in a job well done that deepen these friendships and move them from just being friends to being Christian brothers and sisters. We work together for the shared goal of furthering God's kingdom by fellowship, breaking bread together, worship and prayer together. With these core elements in place, Christian relationships are formed that provide discipleship and mentorship to young Christians. Over the past years, we have made daily videos about what happens on Serve. We do this because it communicates back here to our home church what we're doing, but it also creates mementos to go back and watch the old videos from past serve trips and laugh along the good times and remember the hard times. This week, Ryan put together a short highlight reel to showcase how the marks of the early church are alive on serve. Some participants are drawn to serve for the work of outreach, others for the memories, and yet others for the sense of belonging. Regardless of their desire to attend serve on any given year, we are forced to live like the early church, following the core principles set out in Acts 2. We are all beneficiaries of the teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers, and all those actions have shaped our faith and helped us engage in the divine work of mission by being involved in the local church. Brooklyn, can we show that video now? hope that gives you a little bit of an idea of what happens on a serve trip. Jesus has overcome the world, and as a church, we submit to his lordship in all things, and Christ, in his word, has given us directives for mission and evangelism in the world by the example of the early church in Acts 2. My heart in this message is to encourage all of you in your faith and mission as a Christian I know there are many people here today who have an overflowing love for Christ in this church. I have seen that love in action, and I've seen God work through that love. There are others of you that might not feel that all the time, but hope to be there one day. My encouragement to all of you is to live out the four marks of the church as outlined in the second chapter of Acts. When you are engaging in the following, following activities, that is, devoting yourself to the teaching of the apostles, which is the teaching that is true and biblical, when you are breaking bread together, sharing with each other, or praying and worshiping together, you are engaged in God's mission in the world, which is to gather his people home, to gather his people to him. 
Last weekend, Ryan, along with some amazing volunteers, ran a Father's Day car wash. You might have been there. In the weeks leading up to the event, I was encouraging people to come to the church on the Saturday and to get their car washed. One comment I received back was that somebody just felt bad coming to church just to get their car washed and not staying to help to wash cars or to barbecue. I kindly rebuked them and said, participating in the, in the event is serving the church. What good is a car wash with plenty of volunteers but no cars to wash? Engaging with church ministry and church events as a participant is a missional action. We need to get rid of the idea that we're here to work and serve all the time in a way of um, being one of the leaders, but actually receiving the ministry is part of engaging in the mission of God. Sometimes we need to be the person beat up in the ditch and not always being the Good Samaritan. It's because we don't convert people, but God does. Our role on this side of glory is to be the church, to be the people that follow these four movements of the early church and trust that when we do what God has called us to do, he will lead the sinners home. I want to close with one more story from a guy named J.T. English. He's a fellow at the Center for Pastor Theologians and a pastor at a church in Texas. And he shared this story the other day of how he became a Christian. His story is one that reminds us of who we are and who God is. We have set tasks to accomplish as the church, and all our ministry and work needs to hinge on these four core elements that the early church lived through. J.T. English heard the gospel from a very nervous saint while he was eating a Big Mac. They were sitting across the table in a McDonald's, and the story goes that the man read to him from one of those pre-printed gospel-telling evangelistic tools that you might have come across in your life. He was so nervous and so scared that he read the entire thing in one breath with no emotion in complete monotone because he was so nervous to be doing evangelism. J.T. English, sitting across from him with a mouth full of Big Mac, was converted in that moment to the, because of the good news that he heard of Jesus Christ. His encouragement, now many years past, as a convert to the faith, is to share the gospel indiscriminately. It is God who saves, not us. Living as a church with the four movements in Acts 2 will hopefully result in all of us doing nothing but preaching Christ crucified. Amen. Let us pray together. Father God, first and foremost, we want to thank you for your son Christ Jesus and his finished work on the cross. We thank you that because of him, we've been invited into this glorious mission of evangelism and mission in this world. We're grateful that we can do that with a church body supporting us. I pray that you would lay on each of our hearts maybe a way that we could participate in the mission of the church and the evangelism in this world. That some, it might be something new or scary, but you would give us a sense of conviction and peace about it. That you would use us, blunt instruments, sinners, to proclaim your gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to all those around us. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.